0: And let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're looking at verse 18, and going all the way down to chapter 4 in verse 1. I have entitled today's message, The Christian Household, and let's begin in a word of prayer. Our Lord, we do thank you for another day to gather as a church family and to worship you. Lord, thank you for All of the amazing people that you have brought into this church. Lord, what a joy it is to come into this auditorium each Sunday. To see people embracing and talking and smiling with one another. To hear the the shouts of small children. And to be able to study your word together. Lord, we thank you for giving us the book of Colossians. And especially the verses we'll be looking at today. And would you help us to understand this passage well, and help us to use it as we try to shape our own households to conform to your will, believing that your will for us is best. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we learned that the Christian life isn't so much about giving things up as it is about replacing our virtues, excuse me, replacing our vices with virtues. And so in the first half of Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and dishonesty. Now, these things may have defined our lives before we came to Christ, but now that we identify with him, we've got to put these things off. Then in the second part of chapter 3, Paul tells us what to replace them with. He says, put on, then, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love, peace, gratitude, scripture, and engagement with a local church. So this is what the Christian life is all about. We put off the vices, put them to death. We put on virtues to become more like Christ. And now here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, all the way through to 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to the family. And here we learn that there is a distinctively Christian way to govern our households. And the Apostle gives us three pairings of relationships here. Wives and husbands, then children and parents, and finally, servants and masters. And honestly, each one of these pairings deserves a sermon all to itself. But today, we're just going to have to content ourselves with a broad survey that covers them all. And the apostle begins with wives. And here is the responsibility he draws our attention to in verse 18. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, what does it mean for a Christian wife to submit to her husband? Well, the word translated submit here is actually a military term, and it refers to a junior officer placing himself under the authority of a superior officer. The term is also closely related to the word respect, which is why the Apostle Paul uses the words submit and respect interchangeably in Ephesians chapter 5. Within a Christian marriage, um, a wife submitting to her husband means, number one, that she is called to affirm that God has given to her husband the greater weight of responsibility to govern the home. Now, wording there is important, okay? God has not given to the husband sole responsibility over the home, but he has given the husband the greater weight of responsibility. The buck stops with the husband when it comes to providing for the practical needs of the family ensuring that everyone has food and clothing and shelter and medical care and educational opportunities and everything else that they're going to need in life spiritual instruction in all of it the, the ultimate responsibility falls upon him and so a wife submitting to her husband means that she understands that this is this is God's plan for husbands and she she is affirming that in her head, in her heart, with with her mouth. She affirms, yes, this is God's plan for my husband, and I support it and I celebrate what God has called him to do. But then number two, it also means that the wife commits herself to supporting and encouraging him in his leadership role, doing everything she can to, to come alongside of him and to make his task a joy, she, she helps him in any way that she can to be the man that God has called him to be, to, to uh, assist him in any task that she can to help him be a good leader. Okay? So this is what biblical submission is all about. Looking at the text more closely now, we'll also notice some, some important uh, things about submission. Number one, we see that it's something offered voluntarily by the wife. Verse 18 does not say, husbands, make your wives submit to you. No, it addresses the wives. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. See, it's not a husband's job to try to compel his wife to submit to him. This is between her and God. It's about whether or not she believes that God's will for her husband and her and the whole household is good. It's about whether she will delight to do God's will herself. So it's something that must come from her heart. But then secondly, we also see that a wife's submission is limited to one man. Okay, looking again at verse 18, it does not say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your husbands. So wives, that means that your submission to your husband is an act of love which tells him that he is unique among all of the other men in your life. He is the the only person in your life that you offer this to. And then thirdly, we see that it's offered to the husband as an act of worship to God. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So the wife is offering submission to her husband, Recognizing that this is God's will for her, and out of her love for God, her desire to please Him, she offers this. That's biblical submission. But now we turn to the big question. Okay, how can a Christian wife cultivate this attitude? Now, I'm not a wife. I'm never going to be one. But, <laughs> but I assume that this is probably really tough for the average wife to, to accept fact, I think that's why the Apostle Paul has singled this one out. I mean, a wife has a lot of responsibilities in the home. Why does Paul single out submission of of all the things he could have chosen? Well, because he understands this truth too, that of all the responsibilities a Christian wife will have, this will be the toughest. So how, wife, can you cultivate this important virtue? Well, as with all things, it'll begin in your heart. Wife, what is your heart attitude toward your husband? Are you discontent with your husband? Discontent with the man that you chose and which you pledged yourself to? Are you cultivating that discontentment? Are you focusing on all of his shortcomings? Well, wife, put that discontentment to death. Instead of thinking about all the ways that your husband doesn't measure up, dwell instead on his virtues. Refuse to compare your husband to any other husband or to any other man. Just dwell on him. See the evidences of God's grace in your husband's life. Point them out to him. Thank God for the virtues that you see in your husband. But then from this new heart attitude of of gratitude rather than discontent, you will also speak words that honor your husband with your lips. Encourage your husband every chance that you get. Praise your husband in public and in private. I like what the uh, Christian author Betsy Ricucci has to say. She says, "...no member of my family has ever risen to greater godliness because of my lack of encouragement." So take that thought to heart, wives, and become your husband's greatest cheerleader. And then also learn to respect your husband in deeds. When you're out in public and your husband is rambling on, don't roll your eyes. Don't stand off at a distance from him. I'm not associated with that guy, right? Don't be impatient toward him. Don't criticize him in front of others or run him down. Behind his back. Instead, show affection for your husband in private and in public. And help him as he tries to be a good leader for his family. Be his cheerleader, his helper, his supporter, his wise counselor. Embrace the role that God has given to him. You know, wives, if you do these things, I believe the impact on your husband will be profound. If you will do these things, your husband will feel like a man. And if he feels like a man, he's probably going to act like a man. And that will be good for him, and it'll be good for you, and it'll be good for your children and your local church and your community as well. So wives, be submissive to your husbands. But now we turn to verse 19. Now Paul directs his... Eyes at husbands. Here's what he says to them Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives. Now, love for your wife involves two things, husband. It involves delighting in her and then pouring out your life for her. I'll start with the first. Loving your wife means delighting in her. We have a responsibility, husbands, to cherish every good quality that we see in our wives. Proverbs chapter 5 speaks to this. King Solomon writes to his son, rejoice in the wife of your youth. That means the woman that you made your vows to all those years ago when you were a young man. You cherish her. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, may her breast satisfy you always. May you be captivated by her love forever. And then he says to his son, why be captivated by an adulteress or embrace a stranger? See, cherish the woman that God gave to you, the one that you made your vows to in the presence of God and many witnesses. And then husbands, show your wife that you cherish her in ways that are meaningful to her. See, many years ago, Gary Chapman came up with the five love languages. These were words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and gifts. Husbands, our job is to figure out which of these are the most meaningful to our wives and then to begin practicing them regularly. Now, when my wife and I were newlyweds, I used to bring her a flower every week on Fridays. My wife loved it, because gift-giving is her love language. She would brag about me to her sister and her brother-in-law, but my brother-in-law would just laugh at her and say, you guys are newlyweds, he's not going to keep this up. And sadly, he was right. (laughs) I didn't keep it up. I got a new job, the new job took me farther away from the the flower shop, and so I I just stopped providing those flowers. But you know, I think I should probably restart it, at least something like it, because my wife loves to receive gifts. It's one of the ways that she knows that I cherish her. And so I should do better. We need to cherish our wives' men and, and to do so in ways that they will find meaningful. But then the other part of love is this pouring out our lives for our wives. You know, most men will proudly declare, I would die for my wife. Well, yes, but will you live for your wife too? Will you subordinate your personal ambitions for the sake of meeting her needs? Will you sacrifice personal career goals, personal money goals? Will you give up your time, everything for her sake? Husbands, if your wife starts telling you that you're working too many hours, that you're spending too much time away from home, that you're not giving enough attention to the kids, will you listen to her, subordinate your ambitions to her needs, and scale back and love her and serve her? And I think the Baptist leader, Wayne Grudem, has provided us with a great example here. Some of you might know Wayne Grudem Way back in the day, he had a very prestigious job at a very prestigious seminary. Okay, he was like a professor of theology. He might have been the chairman of the department at a at a seminary called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's located in suburban Chicago, one of the largest, most prestigious seminaries on the planet. Well, then his wife started having some real health challenges. And they went to the doctors, they did everything they could, but finally the doctors said, there's, there's nothing more medically that we can do um, uh, for you. They told Wayne Grudem's wife that the only thing that could be done now was for them to leave the upper Midwest and go down to the Southwest. They said that the hotter temperatures and the drier air might bring her some physical relief. So... Wayne Grudem walked away from his job at Trinity, packed up, and he and his wife moved down to Phoenix, Arizona. And he took a new job working at a school called Phoenix Seminary. And At the time, Phoenix Seminary was this tiny little no-name seminary, but that's what he was trained to do, right? To, to teach theology. So he gave up this incredibly prestigious job, took this little a job of this no-name seminary, way, way out from where all the activity was in the theological world. The activity is in the major cities east of the Mississippi. It's not so much that far out west. But he did it because he loves his wife and because he wanted to take good care of her. And, of course, now Phoenix Seminary is a very reputable school, almost single-handedly because of his efforts. But that's what loving your wife looks like. Or we have an example right here from our own church family. Some of you will remember Lou Murray. We were just talking about him on a Wednesday night. Lou Murray's wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And eventually it got so bad that she had to go into a nursing home and she was almost completely unresponsive. I mean, she didn't recognize anyone. She couldn't talk anymore. She couldn't feed herself. Nothing. Just basically 24 hours a day, she just laid in bed, blank stare looking up at the ceiling. But Louis Murray loved his wife. And so every single day... He got up, fed himself breakfast, got dressed, and then he went to the nursing home. And every single day for more than six years, he went to her bedside, he fed her lunch himself, stayed all day at the nursing home with her, fed her dinner, and then went home. And then he'd wake up the next morning, do it all over again. She didn't even remember his name, but he did this for her. He kept a copy of his wedding vows inside of his Bible. And every single morning, he would wake up and do his family devotions and he would reread the vows that he had made to his wife to give him the strength to do that for another day. And then he'd go and he'd take care of his wife. See, that's what loving your wife looks like, men. Not just saying boldly, I would die for you, but it means actually dying to yourself every day and subordinating what you would wish to do. For For meeting her needs. And yes, it also means giving up your safety for her sake. There may be times when you are called to put yourself in danger to take care of her. And men, I don't care if you are ninety pounds soaking wet. And your wife is a black belt in karate. Okay, if there's a thump at the back door in the middle of the night, it's your job, husband, to go and find out what it was. Because that's the husband's job. He protects his wife. Another example is you're walking downtown with your wife. Husband, you always walk on the street side. Your wife walks on the store side of the sidewalk. Why? Because it's the husband's job to always accept the greatest risk. And walking on the roadside is the more risky place to walk. Love your wife. Accept the risks yourself so your wife doesn't have to. That's what it means to love her. But then also verse 19 tells us that it means being tender towards your wife. The verse reads, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I think Paul adds this because it's a real temptation that husbands feel. After all, all things being equal, the husband is usually bigger than his wife. He's stronger than his wife. He's got a louder voice than his wife. And he's going to be tempted to misuse those attributes. Instead of directing all those things toward leading and providing and protecting his wife, he's going to use those things to to coerce his wife or threaten her, scare her. And so Paul says, you love your wife and don't you dare be harsh with your wife. Don't raise your voice to her. Don't curse her. Don't tear her down. Don't threaten her. Don't make her to feel stupid or scared. Don't use your physical size to intimidate her. Treat her with tenderness. That's what a wife deserves to receive from her husband. It's what it means to love your wife. Some of you husbands might be thinking right now, but pastor, you don't know who my wife is. You don't don't get it. My wife is a dragon. I can't do this for her. Well, let's look at verse 19 again. It doesn't say, Husbands, love your wives if they're nice to you. It says just love your wives, period. Love her no matter what. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Left in our natural state, all of us, the Bible says, are hostile to God. Hostile to Christ. We don't want anything to do with Him. And yet... Christ was willing to leave heaven's glory, come to earth, live among hostile people, and then die for their sakes. Husband, you're called to love your wife like that. Whether she's lovable or hostile to you, you care for her. You're tender toward her. You give your life for her. Now we turn to verse 20 and we look at God's word for children. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, first question we need to answer here is, who qualifies as a child? Here's the guidance I'll give you. Okay, If you are old enough to understand these words but still young enough that you're depending on mom and dad for your food, clothing, and shelter, then you qualify as a child in this verse. This verse is speaking to you. And children or teenagers, this verse says that you have one main responsibility in the household. That is to obey your parents. That means your job is to do what they say, when they say it, and, here's the hard part, with the right heart attitude about it. And verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything. In everything. Now, kids, sometimes your parents are going to make rules for you that you just don't understand. Like, how did they come up with this one? You're going to ask. When I was a senior in high school, my date to the senior prom lived in Canada. You know, my mom came up with this crazy rule. She said, Brandon, you're not allowed to drive across an international border to pick up your date and uh, go to your prom. I thought, Mom, I'm 17 years old. I got my own car. I, I Let me go to Canada and get my date. She said, no. She said, you've got these two options instead. She said, either I can go with you to pick up your date, or you can meet your date at the banquet hall. Now, neither of those options is appealing to a 17-year-old guy, okay? I, I am not showing up at my date's front door with my mom in the back seat, okay? Not gonna happen. And I'm not gonna win any points if I tell my date she's gotta come up with her own ride to get to the banquet hall. Not acceptable. And I told my mom that. I said, forget it. I told her, I'm bigger than you. I've got my own car. I'm going to Canada whether you want me to or not. And I told her, there is nothing you can do about it. I don't remember this, but my mom does. <laughs> okay. In her telling of the story, I had her pinned to a wall saying, there is nothing you can do about it. That's your pastor at 17 years old. <laughs> My mom replied, she said, if you drive off, I'll call the police and report a stolen vehicle. How will your date feel when you come home with the cops? Okay. So I caved, okay? She had the trump card. And uh, I don't remember how it worked out, but I know my mom wasn't there, and I know I didn't go to Canada by myself. Okay. Sometimes parents make rules that kids don't understand. I couldn't understand what my mom was was doing, but she understood that it's a dangerous thing for an inexperienced driver to go through downtown Detroit, cross an international border, drive through another major city, Windsor, and pick up a day, and then to do it again the other direction, to go to the prom, and then to do it back and forth a second time when the prom is over. She thought it wasn't a good idea to let her son do something like that, not at that stage of of development. You know, now that I'm a parent, sometimes I make rules for my kids that they don't understand. I've got this annoying rule that our kids should be in bed at about 7.30 on school nights. They don't like that rule. My, My son says, Dad, I don't require sleep. And he says, when you when you leave me here at night, I just stay up all night awake. When my son wakes up in the morning and, and he, he comes into the living room and I say, good morning, Daniel. And he says, good morning, back. And when I ask, how did you sleep last night? He says, I never sleep at night. I didn't sleep a wink. It's like, really? Because when I checked on you before I went to bed, you were snoring pretty, pretty good. He, he doesn't get these rules. But I understand that A five-year-old needs lots of sleep. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to concentrate in school. And he's going to be grumpy, and he's going to get sluggish. And I don't want those things to happen. I want my son to be at his best during the day. That means he's got to sleep at night. You know, sometimes parents also give their kids chores that their kids would rather not do. My chores growing up included unloading the dishwasher, mowing the lawn. I even had to do my own laundry. Can you believe it? Some of you guys might have chores at home that you'd rather not do. But you know, most parents, most parents are decent human beings. And they don't make their rules and assign their chores because they hate us. They do it because they love us and because they want to protect us. Also because they want us to learn responsibility because they understand that one day we're going to graduate from high school and then we're going to leave the house, we're going to have to make it on our own, and they want us to be able to do our own laundry and wash our dishes when we're on our own. They love us, and this is the only way to teach us to do those things. So Paul writes here, verse 20, children, obey your parents' in everything, the things that you understand, the things that you don't understand, the things that you like to do, the things that you don't like to do. Obey them in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, God gave parents to you as a gift to guide you safely into adulthood. And if you really think hard about it, you'll probably find that that they're doing a decent job. Think back through your life thus far. Think of all the times you scraped your knee and mom and dad were there to kiss it and make it feel better and strap the band-aid on. Think of all the times you came home from school and it had been a bad day because the kids were mean to you or you didn't do well on on your test and they were there to provide comfort to you. Think of all the times when you were little that you wanted to play games with them and they probably didn't want to play them, but they did anyway with a smile on their face because they love you, and they knew it would make you feel special. Think about all of the meals they cooked for you, all the hours they worked outside of the home to provide for you. Think of all the, the stress that they endured as they were trying to figure out, how do I pay for this medical bill? How do I get braces for, for my kids? And, and, and how do I give them a good education And they bore the brunt of all of that stress. They didn't trouble you with it because they loved you. They wanted what was good for you. You know, kids, God has given your parents a great responsibility. Ephesians 5 says, parents, raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a huge task. God has also delegated some authority to your parents. Authority is sufficient for them to carry out their responsibilities. When you see your parents as gifts and you joyfully obey their instructions and you honor them as your mom and dad, I think God is very pleased. In fact, this text says God is very pleased because you're embracing God's plan for your development. Your parents are not perfect. Most of them aren't even close to perfect. But you know what? We kids aren't perfect either. They sin against us and we sin against them. And sometimes they make unwise decisions and sometimes we do too. But let's look at our parents as gifts of God. Let's obey them with our whole hearts in everything. For this is right. And then verse 21. Now turns to parents, specifically to fathers. Remember what we said at the start. God has placed the greater weight of responsibility on the husband's fathers for the management of the home. The buck stops with them. So verse 21 addresses the fathers. Both parents ought to listen. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. New American Standard Bible says, do not antagonize your children. That's the idea here. It's don't treat them in a way that would crush their spirits. Now, how could a father do that to his kids? Well, a lot of different ways. By being overbearing or hypercritical or hypocritical or by meting out punishments that far exceed the seriousness of the offense, or by being inconsistent with rules and punishments, also by name-calling or belittling, by embarrassing our kids, and on and on it goes. There are many, many ways that parents can exacerbate exasperate their children. Well, Listen, parents, especially dads, You need to understand that your kids are in a very vulnerable position. They're probably smaller than you, and they're weaker than you, and they have this as their primary responsibility in life to obey you. Do you realize that if you are a a cruel parent, their lives will be miserable? It's going to affect them all the way through adulthood. Parents, fathers, don't crush your kid's spirit. Now, how can you tell if you are being overbearing towards your kids? Well, moms and dads, if your kids are old enough, they're probably going to tell you. Say, Mom, Dad, you're killing me. <laughs> Knock it off. Okay? But a lot of times they'll be too young to articulate such things. And so you're gonna have to look for nonverbal cues. Look for things like like these. Do your children want to be near you? Or do they seem to avoid you? How about when you come home from work? Do they run to the door to welcome you home? Or do they try to keep away from you? Do they make eye contact with you? Do they avoid eye contact? Do your kids seem happiest when they're away from your house? are they happiest when they're together with the family? When your kids mess up, do they come to you for help? Or do they hide their mistake from you because they're scared of you? Do your small children draw pictures of you? What do those pictures look like? Do they ever draw pictures for you? If not, why don't you think they do? Parents, if you've been antagonizing your kids, you need to beg God to forgive you. And then you need to go to your kids. You need to beg them to forgive you. And then you need to come up with a new way to parent your kids. A way that will love them and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, because that's God's will. Parents, if you don't repent and change your ways, all I can say to you is this, God have mercy on you. Because we know what God thinks of little kids, of those who mistreat them. I wish I had time to look at the final pairing, but I see that it's come to an end. So let me conclude with this. What we have in this passage is a Christian vision for the ideal household. And in this household, wives are submissive to their husbands, husbands are loving toward their wives, children are obedient to their parents, and parents are kind to their kids. Church family, just imagine how happy our homes would be if each member followed this vision. Imagine how happy our homes would be. Can you imagine the impact that our church would have on the communities that we represent if every household in this church lived out this ideal before a world that has largely lost the biblical vision of family life? What an impact we could make if we live this way. So let's work toward this ideal and let's pray together now. Lord, you have given us a, a high and wholly ideal for family life. And we want our families to measure up to it. So please, help wives to learn to be submissive to their husbands. Help husbands to learn the meaning of love for their wives. Help children to become joyfully obedient to their parents, and help parents to be kind to their kids. Lord, help us to establish families that are pleasing to you, the the kinds of families that will provide a powerful witness in our communities as they see the transformative effect of the gospel on each member of the household. Lord, help us to uphold this as a beautiful ideal before a culture that has largely forgotten it and sometimes even been hostile to it. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.